Hey guys, this is Cobain the Christian. Before we get to the beginning of today's video, I want to make a couple housekeeping notes. First of all, on Jay Dyer's channel, I had a discussion last night, which I enjoyed a great deal, about the messianic identity of Jesus and what his messiahship from the scriptures can tell us about how God manages the world and what implications that has for the way we think about Christianity in relation to all other things. So it's a very wide-ranging discussion, and I think you'll enjoy it a great deal. Uh, second, um, the Q&A that I did through the live stream last Wednesday was uh, a very great success, I think. Um, I enjoyed it. I think uh, you guys probably got something out of it, and I'm going to make this a weekly thing. Uh, and it should be every Wednesday or so, that might change, but this Wednesday at 9 p.m. EST, so a little earlier, we will have another live stream. And again, you can ask whatever you want. I can't guarantee that I will answer whatever you want, but you can ask um, if you use the super chat function to ask your question, um, I can give you a high probability of an answer, though there are certain questions that you just can't anticipate, and there are certain things that I don't want to speak on because I don't have any special knowledge about it or because I think it would just be unwise to talk about a given subject, but I don't want to make any hard and fast rules, but this Wednesday, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, uh, I will be having another live stream, so I hope you guys can make it to that. Uh, Beyond this, I just want to mention what we mention every time. My Patreon, patreon.com slash is instrumental in helping to continue to produce uh, these videos and uh, do the work that is related to it, doing one-on-one -on -one discussions, so on and so forth. The top level of uh, patronage guarantees at least one hour per month of one-on-one -on -one discussion about whatever you'd like to talk about as long as they have something substantial to say that's twenty dollars and up on patreon twenty five dollars and up on youtube because youtube takes a higher um proportion of what you contribute so if the two platforms are equal to you i would recommend using patreon okay so today what we want to talk what i want to talk about is the communion of saints, and specifically the concrete ways that the veneration of saints is realized in the life of the church. And I want to answer along the way some uh, Protestant and evangelical questions and criticisms about the veneration of saints. Before we get into that, let's begin with a prayer. Illumine our hearts, O Master. Who lovest mankind with the pure light of thy divine knowledge, open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of thy gospel teachings, and plant also in us the fear of thy blessed commandments, that trampling down all carnal desires we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as are well pleasing unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God. And thee do we ascribe glory, together with thy Father, who is everlasting, and then only good and life creating spirit, both now and ever, to the ages of ages. Amen. So, who knows whether I'll follow through on this, but I don't want to make today's video too excessively long. So, I have put all of the points here, the bullet points, up on the screen, because if I only am looking 
at them one at a time. I tend to just go on and on about the given subtopic. But what I want to really tackle is the question of the legitimacy of the specific things that we do, the way that we speak about the saints. This can be difficult to nail down, but I understand the criticism that many evangelicals and Protestants have, which is that, okay, Orthodox Christians, along with Catholics, say that we worship God alone, and the reverence that we have for the saints is distinct qualitatively, speaking from the reverence that we have for God. So we don't worship Mary, we venerate Mary is the language that's often used. Uh, these are often categorized according to the Greek terms latria and dulia, one of them meaning worship, the other one meaning veneration. Now, the Protestant hears this and they say, okay, but how exactly do we pay honor to God? Well, we pay honor to God by praying to him. We make prostrations. We honor those things that he has made and so on and so forth. And how exactly do Orthodox and Catholics honor the saints? Well, we pray to the saints. We make prostrations. We kiss their icons. And the evangelical, not without um, an understandable justification, says, if you really are distinguishing these two acts how is that concretely manifest in your life and it's not a bad question it's a good question and part of the answer pertains to the nature of the distinction between the reverence we pay to god and the reverence we pay to the saints instead of using two qualitatively different terms like latria and dulia i prefer to use the term absolute worship which we pay to god alone and relative worship which we pay to the saints now, relative worship uses the word relative in its strict sense. That is, it is worship paid in relation to God. In other words, we honor God absolutely as he who has life in himself, as he who cannot but exist, as he in whom all the perfections and beauties of existence are necessarily and coextensively present. And we honor the saints insofar as they make present and concrete to us these qualities of God. So we honor God absolutely, and we honor the saints insofar as God is present in and through them. Think about what a human being is. A human being is a creature of God. The creation is made by God. The artist is present in all of the art he produces, though not in the same way that he is present in, let's say, a tuxedo that he puts on. And God has produced the creation as something like a work of art. This is now C.S. Lewis uses mere Christianity. He's produced it as something like a work of art and... In the incarnation, he wraps himself in the cosmos like a robe. And through the history of the church, he extends the accomplishment of his incarnation to make his presence more and more intimately actual according to the distinct qualities of every individual creature. 
But God and who God is is made manifest to us in the creation. And the question that I think we need to answer is, is it the case that the honor paid to the imprint passes to the prototype? That is, you have a signet ring, you imprint it into clay. Is the imprint of such a character that the way that we behave in relation to it intrinsically has implications for the way that we feel about the archetype, which is the source of the imprint. Before moving on to nail down this specific issue, I want to say a couple more words about worship and the way that this pertains to sin and idolatry. In biblical categories, all sin is idolatry. And here's why. Sin invariably and inevitably leads to death. This is because you become like what you worship. What you value most above everything else, what you spend your life contemplating and seeking after, that molds and shapes you. And if you're seeking after a person, it will mold and shape you to become like that which you are seeking out. So we read throughout the prophets that those who worship dumb, deaf, blind idols themselves become dumb, deaf, and blind. Isaiah uses this language again and again. Uh, the psalmist says that those who seek after idols will become like them. Uh, we read that Israel becomes stiff-necked. Well, this language is used to refer to cattle, and it's because Israel worships the golden calf that they become stiff-necked. If you value the idol above everything else, well, you will be shaped after its fashion. Now, to value an idol or any creature as one's ultimate goal, as one's ultimate good, is to die because God alone possesses life intrinsically. In other words, every creature that there is, by the nature of the case, by the nature of what it means to be a creature, has life only in relation to God. God is not only the creator of the world, but he is the one who is actively and at every moment sustaining it in existence as what it is. So all creation has its nature as an expression, as a declaration, a proclamation of the character of God. So to worship a creature not in relation to God is to die. If you become like what you worship and you worship that which does not have life in itself and you take that as your ultimate good, well, you become mortal. You tend towards non-existence because you only exist because of God's active sustenance, God's active power of upholding you in existence. We see this in Romans chapter 1. Now, Romans uses the word image or icon in Greek twice, once in Romans 1 and once in Romans 8. And here is what Paul says about idolatry in Romans chapter 1. Claiming to be wise, 
they became fools. Now, he's alluding here to uh, Genesis chapter 3, where Eve sees the tree of knowledge and she saw that it was good to become wise. That is, she wanted to manage and rule over the world. But in seeking the tree of wisdom, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, just Solomon had the knowledge to discern between good and evil and becoming king. In seeking it apart from God's terms, she was seeking the creation on her own terms. And thus, she got the inverse of that for which she was seeking. Claiming to be wise, uh, they became fools and exchanged, why don't you pay attention to this language, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So two words you need to pay attention to. First is glory and second is immortal. We see the dynamic here. In worshiping that which is the creature and not the creator, one is likened to it precisely in one's lack of connection to that which is the ultimate and infinite source of life. You worship that which is mortal and you become mortal yourself. Well, that which constitutes any creature as immortal is the glory of God. The language of glory is consistently used in the scripture to refer to God in his awesome self-disclosure. God is glorious in the Exodus because he makes himself visibly and indisputably known in defeating the Egyptians, but also in making himself knowable in redemption. We must remember that the blood of the Passover lamb was made available to both Israelite and Egyptian. There were many Egyptians who came out of Israel with the mixed multitude. Read that Exodus chapter 12. God wanted the Egyptians as the Israelites to know the Lord. And it was said that God got glory over Pharaoh because what Pharaoh wanted was to be his own God apart from the one true God. Pharaoh said to Moses, you will not see my face again. If you come and see my face again, you will surely die. This is a reference in the literary strategy of the book. In Pharaoh's mind, no doubt it was an accidental reference. This is a reference to Genesis chapter 3, where if you disobey the one God in whom all life exists, you will surely die. For Pharaoh to make that claim on his own behalf, for Pharaoh to claim to have the face which will destroy those who are not prepared to behold it. That is idolatry. He claims to have dominion over the world on his own terms. And this is definitively undermined and disproved because God destroys Egypt. Pharaoh's kingdom is taken away. God gets glory over Pharaoh. And he splits the Red Sea while the glory cloud is visibly present, illumining everything that is uh, happening. God in his glory descends on Mount Sinai. Now Moses goes up into the cloud in which there is divine glory, and he gets two things. First of all, he gets the Torah. This is a pattern of instruction for wise living. And second, he gets the tabernacle. He goes into the presence of God, and he sees a blueprint for the 
place in which God will dwell. And this blueprint is a microcosm, an architectural representation of the creation, which tells us that the creation exists because it is an imprint of the paradigm of existence which exists in God. We're told in the book of Numbers that Moses saw the form of the Lord. Well, the forms which are the principles of existence for every creature in its particularity lie in the qualities and the attributes of God. And there is a correspondence between the Torah and the tabernacle. The Torah is that rhythm of being which qualifies and makes known God's own rhythm of being. God subsists as the eternal Father of the only begotten Son, to whom he is bound by the Holy Spirit. This existence of total selfhood through total embrace of other selves is the root of love, and that is why to have life one must be harmonized with God's own way of being. We read that Abraham was to walk after God. Walk before me and be perfect. Now this word walk in the Hebrew language, halach, is the root of halakha, which means the particular legal regulations about obedience to the Torah. And we see in Exodus 33 to 34 that God's own character, God's name is disclosed to Moses on Mount Sinai when the glory of God passes before Moses and Moses beholds God's back. Gregory of Nyssa interprets this as a reference to following after God. In other words, one knows God's presence, one knows God's glory, one knows God's name and character when one follows him, when one's own pattern of existence mirrors and expresses his pattern of existence. There's a great deal more one could uh, say about that uh, subject, but it's uh, it, it's a really um, Exodus 33 to 34 is perhaps the most important text in the Old Testament about the disclosure of the character of God. He's a God merciful and gracious. He extends his mercy and his love to thousands of generations, and he does not clear the guilty, punishing them to the third and fourth generation. Meaning the consequences of sin are transmitted just in the nature of the sin from generation. Uh, to generation. Even when there is repentance, the family line deals for a period of time with the natural consequences, the wounds that are produced of that sin. Now, the other place in Romans that the word image is used is in Romans 8, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he, that is the Son, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. This word called can also be rendered named. One is baptized into the name of the Lord. The name reveals the character of the Lord as the God of Israel, as the one who is faithful and supremely loving. And so to be baptized into the name of the Lord is to be made a participant in his way of life. How are we made a participant in the way of life of the uncreated of God himself? Well, it's because the only begotten Son takes on human flesh and thus takes on our flesh. We can live his life because he has lived 
our life. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he who is rich became poor for our sake so that we by his poverty might become rich. And those riches are the riches of his glory. And it is that glory which is the glory of the immortal God. It is that glory which makes immortality possible because glory is the very character of God in motion, the character of God insofar as it is disclosed. And the disclosure of that character reveals God to exist as an infinite font of life who never runs out but always has more depth to give. Thus, those whom he justified, he also glorified. The glory of God is revealed in us, we're told, in Romans chapter 8, in the resurrection of the body. And that is why all creation hopes for the resurrection of the human family, because the creation itself becomes a participant in the outflow of God's immortal glory through the human family. The human being becomes more than it is by participation in God and becomes fully human in becoming more than fully human. So also the rest of the creation becomes more than it is in being made a participant in the human family and thus in God and thus becomes fully itself. So that is why we distinguish worship of God from the reverence paid to the saints. The worship that we owe to God is a disposition and pattern of behavior that pertains uniquely to him because he is the source for everything else that exists. And this is not simply a fact about him. It is the governing principle of our relationship to him. It is in taking God as the ultimate good that we can have any subordinate goods because those subordinate goods are only called good in relation to God. He is the one who is giving them as goodnesses. But what this also indicates is that these subordinate goods, in being honored as truly good, in being honored as genuine reflections and or participations in the life of God, create an obligation or at least an inclination to render a mode of honor which has a certain likeness to the way that we honor God. That is, if we pay God a certain kind of honor and do it in an ultimate sense, then it seems that those creatures which participate in his godliness, which participate in his immortality, participate in his glory, ought to be likewise honored but in a subordinate way and in a subordinate way that keeps in mind the relation of the subordinate to the preeminent that the sort of subordination is one of participation in god who is immediately present in every of his existent creatures so the church is a family the epistle to the hebrews calls the church the assembly of the firstborn jesus is the firstborn among many brothers because in scripture that language which is philosophically elucidated using terms like consubstantial in scripture that language is specified utilizing the language of a family adam uses this phrase bone of my bone flesh of my flesh and what he's talking about here is eve's being consubstantial with him of being of the same nature. 
we see this language used elsewhere to refer to brotherhood. And that is because Eve is, in a sense, a sister bride. Solomon says of his bride in the Song of Songs, my sister, my bride. And that is because there is a likeness which is just as important as the distinction in the creation of a marriage. There must be a common humanity, but also a distinct personality, a distinct maleness and femaleness. And bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, indicates that consubstantial aspect because bone in the Hebrew language also means self. Self of myself, Adam says. That selfhood is shared and expressed through union with a distinct self. Now, Jesus becomes consubstantial with us in the incarnation. He, the divine eternal son, appropriates to himself a human nature and lives the kind of life that he lives as the only begotten son in a human nature, such that the sonship into which we are adopted is likewise a divine eternal sonship. The human nature is given these divine qualities, these divine operations, this divine way of being, and it's given it according to a particular mode, a particular rhythm, and that rhythm is called sonship, which is why in the spirit, by the spirit rather, and in Christ we are adopted as sons of God, and that both entails and is produced by a particular way of life, which we often speak about uh, with the language of the fruit uh, of the spirit. But my point here is that this family, this language of a family and brotherhood, it is not merely a rhetorical flourish. It rather indicates a particular sort of likeness which exists between the only begotten son and those who are joined to him as body and bride. And body and bride are tied together because the two become one flesh. Now, this relationship of a family is important in more than just the way in which the language of family uh, corresponds according to Cabain or Sarah from Hamilton, the way it corresponds to the philosophical theology of uh, the fathers of the church and the ecumenical councils. I'm not using all of this just as a way to get you to the real meat, which is supposedly the philosophical theology. Rather, both the tradition and the scriptures, they have their own but everywhere interconnected way of speaking, each of which has its splendor in relation to the other, and each of which can only be understood in relation to the other. So understanding that consubstantiality is manifest in the language of family will tell us certain things about why the veneration of saints is uniquely appropriate. So think about the way that Jesus does his work. In the second person of the Trinity, he unites heaven and earth. That's what we're told in the letter to the Ephesians. God unites all things in his son, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, you need to understand that in Genesis 1, when God created the heavens and the earth, on the second day of creation, the heaven of heavens, this throne room of God around which there are myriads and myriads of angels, was separated from the material cosmos by what is called the firmament. This is called in the Psalms, the waters above. In the book of Revelation, you see it as a sea of crystal because you see it from uh, God's perspective where he looks down through it. Jesus as heavenly high priest, the lamb with the seven eyes, which are the seven letters, holy to the Lord in the Hebrew language of the high priest's crown. 
The Lamb ascends above all things. He ascends above the Sea of Crystal. He casts his fire to the earth as he prophesied in the Gospel of Luke. I came to the cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. Cast fire on the earth so the sea is mixed with fire in Revelation 14. But when God is all in all, there is no more sea, Revelation 20. We're told that after the millennium, which I take to be the church age, the resurrection of the body takes place. There is a final judgment, and then there is no more sea. Not no more ocean, but no more heavenly sea. No more firmament, because God is all in all, and the heaven and earth are totally stitched together, totally united. What is often called the heavens, the stellar heavens with the sun, moon, and stars, this is a symbol of the highest heaven. So that symbol exists as part of what I call uh, greater earth. But the heaven of heavens, that's God's throne room, which is most fully filled with his presence. And it's in this throne room that you have the heavenly council, the heavenly court. It's in this throne room that you have the throne where God sits, where you have his counselors, and where all of this royal um, etiquette becomes most relevant. We must understand that in both scripture and throughout the traditions of most uh, normative cultures, the idea of royalty is bound up with the notion of the family. The notion of the king is simply the most particular instantiation of an institution called the royal family. The royal family is part of this extended web of families, which are bound together by a common language and a common altar. When David is enthroned as king, he's spoken of in terms suggesting that he is the father of the nation. And we must recall that fatherhood is not simply a way of talking about the relation of origin, that the nation is begotten by the father. No, it is about an ongoing interrelationship which exists in the nation as a single organism. That is, David has a responsibility for the nation. He has a responsibility to guard and protect them, to be an instrument in God's hands by which the children are grown up to maturity. And because this relationship of uh, construction, of guardianship, of protection is summed up in the language of family, it is also summed up in the language of household because there is a correspondence that is comprehensive between man and creation. Those qualities which are proper to humanity can be found distributed throughout the creation and all those qualities which are distributed throughout the creation are summed up in humanity. And this relationship of microcosm and macrocosm finds its expression in the relationship between a family and the architectural household in which the family lives, which is why you will so consistently find architectural language being used to describe persons. So the church, it's the household of God. Uh, in Ephesians and Colossians, Paul just slides effortlessly between architectural and personal uh, language. So the nation is corporately a household, and the king is individually, personally, a father. 
In Deuteronomy, Moses gives us the Ten Commandments, again, and then if you follow the text closely, you will find that blow by blow, in order, each of the Ten Commandments are exposited and unfolded according to their implications and interrelations. And the significant point here is that the fifth commandment, or the fifth word is the literal translation, dealing with the obligation to honor father and mother, well, it is under this category that Moses elucidates the obligation that everyone has in relation to the civil authorities, that the uh, uh, obligation they have in relation to the prophets, the obligation that they have in relation to the priesthood, because all of these creatures are expressions of the same fatherly category. The notion of a household, the household of God, the notion of paternity is the grammar used to explain all of these various offices. Moreover, the fatherhood, which is the basis for the obligation to honor father and mother, is rooted in the fatherhood of God. Ephesians 1, it is the only begotten Son in whom we inherit all things as beloved children of the Father. Ephesians chapter 6, we are told that there is one commandment with a promise, that we will live long in the land if we honor father and mother. Now this word promise goes back to Ephesians 1, where the Holy Spirit of promise comes through faith in Christ, and the promise is that of the inheritance of the renewed heavens and renewed earth. And we see therein the correspondence. The two tables of the law, that is the two sets of five commandments each, also correspond to each other in order. The commandment to honor God above all things corresponds to the commandment to honor father and mother. So, the type bears relation to the prototype. Why is it that we are to honor our creaturely fathers and mothers? Why is it that we are to honor prophets and civil magistrates and the ordained ministry of the church? It is because God is Father and God has imparted this aspect of his personal life in these particular roles in human life. And this point is the hinge on which the whole argument turns. Because if it is really true that this eternal aspect of the life of God is imprinted and symbolized in creaturely roles, and we honor these creatures because they are a type of the divine prototype, that is the basis for the veneration of the saints. We revere the saints precisely as imprints and participants in the uncreated life of God. And it belongs to the critic of the veneration of the saints to demonstrate why this or that specific practice is uniquely objectionable. I think part of the feeling pertains to the highly formal approach that we have in relation to the saints. We're expected to do very precise, liturgically regulated actions. 
Well, I think a close analogy to this exists in the Orient, where there is a very detailed set of etiquette in terms of our behavior when we enter into a household, our behavior when we enter into someone else's household. There's one Oriental language, I forget which it is, which has a unique set of nouns according to the distinct family relations that hold true between one person and another. So there's one set of nouns that holds true for, let's say, one spouse, another for one's parents, another for one's parents-in-law. The whole spectrum of human life is refracted according to a different rhythm, according to a different mode, according to the unique relations that a person has in the broader category of the family. We already know from the Old Testament that such things as prostration before the royal throne is not prohibited. It is something which um, is done licitly. And think about if a king sends a representative to treat with the ambassador of another country. Now, if a person dishonors that representative, let's say he takes his Diet Coke and he pours it on his head, will the king take this as a diplomatic offense? Of course he will. What if you said, well, I wasn't talking to the king. I was just talking to this other guy. It's silly for you to think that I insulted the king. I only insulted this other figure. No, the king's authority and personhood are carried in his representative such that one's disposition towards the one is related to one's attitude towards the other. Now let's talk about some of the specific language. I think probably what is most problematic for people is this phrase that we return to in the Orthodox um, liturgical tradition, most holy mother of God, save us. And people say, well, Jesus is the one who saves us. And of course, that's true. Christ is the savior. And in one respect, Christ alone is the savior because all salvation that whole power which brings us from death to life and which grows us from spiritual children into spiritual adults, that power is God's and it self-exists in God. He needs no other in order to have that power. Nevertheless, it remains the case that God extends himself in and through the church such that the church becomes a participant not only in the benefit of salvation, but in being the instrument of salvation. We talked about this in uh, the video on the one mediator. The church takes up the groan of creation and unites it to the intercession of Christ because the spirit of Christ dwells in the heart of the church and makes intercession for us such that our prayers are the prayers of Christ and our prayers are joined to the groans of the creation, which is why we're told that the creation hopes in the revelation of the sons, plural of God. Now, could not someone say by this very logic used to criticize the reverence paid to the saints? Why is the creation hoping in the revelation of these sons of God? These are creatures. They're sinners. Why are they the hope of creation's glory? Indeed, as Colossians says, Christ himself is the hope of glory. But it is because Christ imparts himself without being any less than himself 
and without losing anything of what he is and who he is. Christ imparts himself to the church such that the church acquires all of the capacities and powers that Christ has, except being the source of all of them. That would just be logically contradictory. The church, Paul says in, in Colossians that in his suffering, for the sake of Christ's body, that is the church, he makes up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. That is language which, if it was not in the New Testament, would undoubtedly be condemned as blasphemous by Protestant critics of Catholicism and Orthodoxy. I want you to just think about this. Just, um, and, and if you're a Protestant, thank you for um, watching the video. I, uh, I respect a lot of Protestant scholars and theologians. I've learned a great deal from Protestants, both as an example and theologically. But I just want you to ask yourself honestly, if... The New Testament did not use the language of making up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. And you read that language being used by an Orthodox theologian. Would you be inclined to treat that language gently? No, I think it would be said to be blasphemous. And I think that shows that the New Testament concept of the church's relationship to Christ is something inconsistent with the logical basis for the criticism of the veneration of the saints. Because the only reason that this language is considered acceptable is because the New Testament says it on its own authority. But if we really are understanding what the scriptures are saying, then we should understand not only that they are legitimate, but the way in which they're legitimate, the reason that this does not constitute idolatry, the reason this doesn't detract from the saving uh, power of Christ. So, I've given a specific example here of the notion of salvation. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 16. Wife, how do you know whether uh, you will save your husband? Husband, how do you know whether you will save your wife? Now, obviously, what this means is that the spouse facilitates the salvation of their partner precisely as an example of what the indwelling of the Holy Spirit means for a person. But it is not as if this is one step removed from Christ. It is rather that Christ is immediately present in the person who reflects his character. So to say that the spouse saves the other spouse is simply to say that Christ saves the other spouse according to this particular way. Because we are joined to Christ as members of his body. So it cannot be the case that simply to speak of uh, the saints saving us is unacceptable. The question is always, what does that mean? And I've tried to explain that in terms of the ultimacy of God as being the source of all things. Not just, I want to repeat this point, not just that, oh, well, God is greater than the saints. I think some Protestants uh, uh, misunderstand the Catholic Orthodox response to their argument as us just saying, well, God is greater than the saints. No, no, no. It is not simply that God is greater than all the saints. It is rather that his greatness relative to the saints is of a particular kind, such that their greatness is all, in its totality, a participation in the immediate presence of God in them. Okay, so how about some other language? Devotion. I remember when I was... Uh, encountering Catholicism and Orthodoxy way back when. 
Um, this is one of those words that really kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Devotion to Mary. Marian devotion. Is that really something that we can consider acceptable? Well, my question for those who consider such language unacceptable is simply this. Can we use these words of any given creature licitly, or non-idolatrously, I should say, or can we use this, these words of the creation corporately or the church collectively and be speaking the truth? And if so, why is it that we cannot, by the same token, apply it to a member of the church individually? So we say the church is the joy of all creation. It's what the psalmist says about the holy temple. Well, if we can say that about a creature, it's clearly not idolatrous. But I think if a person spoke of the Blessed Virgin Mary as joy of all creation, uh, it would be suggested that this at least tends towards idolatry. But consider the word devotion again. You hear the phrase devoted family man. He is devoted to his wife. She is devoted to her husband. They are devoted to their children. Devotion signifies a particular sort of affection, an affection that is given birth by a familial relationship, that is the relationship that is bound together in a single household, uniting each of the persons together into a single organism. And it is to be understood the same way in the case of the saints. Indeed, in the book of Acts, the book of Acts begins with the household, and we are told that the 12 apostles are there. There are 120 others there. So the 120, that's 12 times 10. Clearly, they're extensions of the 12 apostles, as remember, corresponding to the 12 tribes, which is a family structure. Uh, and we are told that the Virgin Mary is there. Now, in Luke chapter uh, uh, chapters 1 to 3, the Holy Spirit overshadows the Virgin Mary. And in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit permeates and suffuses the church. So the Virgin Mary is a paradigm of sorts of what the church is collectively. So, to use an analogy about iconography that is very, very common now, this is hardly just me, you see this everywhere, uh, kissing family photos. You've got a photo of a family member who is far away, and you behave in a way relative to that photo that signifies your affection for the family member. And the question simply is, is the family member truly present in a symbolic way in the photo? And of course he or she is. That's the only reason that we carry these photos around with us, because the correspondence is such that one reminds us of the other. And I use the word remind intentionally because it is a sacramental word. Do this as my memorial. To remind is both to have God made present to us and have other creatures in God made present to us. And also, we are made present to God. We have the mind of Christ. Well, the mind of Christ is both that which is searched out by the Father through the Spirit from eternity and that which is incarnate and possesses human nature. The mind of Christ has divine and human life.
So I won't say much more on on the this analogy because it's been so kind of this is well trod territory. Uh, I want to say one more thing on the formality of it, and I think there's a reason um, for this. In speaking of our being made new creatures, we are speaking of every aspect of our life. So our salvation is often analogized to the idea of a conquest. So Israel, they conquer the land and we are taken from the ground. Human beings are made from dirt. And so a plot of land symbolically corresponds to a human being. And so we find in uh, scriptures like the epistle to the Romans, we find that we are to have dominion over our bodies. This is the language that is used of conquest and inheritance. Because we are to, by our will, empowered and in empowered by and in cooperation with the uncreated life and power of God, we govern the flow of life that runs through our whole body. So in the world to come, in the resurrection body, every aspect of our bodily life is under the dominion of our power of willing. So our power of willing extends even to things which right now are simply outside of our direct control, like the beating of our heart. Because our minds governed by the will is fully interior to the body, just as the body becomes fully interior to the mind in the life of God, which is the archetype and paradigm and source uh, for them both. But part of sanctification, part of being glorified and redeemed means that even the subtleties of our behavior are redeemed and glorified. Even the little things that we say are taken up into Christ. God will, if we let him make us perfect, he won't just deal with some embarrassing bad habits that we came to him uh, so that he would take them away. He deals with our whole selves. He will make us perfect. C.S. Lewis says, I just um, recently shared a post from Lewis's Mere Christianity on this point. Uh, well, I think the extent and breadth of our inclinations and behavior that need to be modified help to explain why not only our relationship to the saints, but our relationship to God is so highly formalized, why we are given pre-written prayers. If nothing else, we're given the book of Psalms, and we pray through those, and those shape us. We get a feel for what it's like to live in the flow of the life of God. But it is extremely useful to have a very precise, precise guidebook, not just for kind of a general principle, but this is what charity means in the motion of our body. We are body and soul. The body and soul alike is resurrected in glory. And so our actions in the body pertain to the relations that we ought to have in God. If our love for God entails a particular relation of charity to all of our family in Christ, well, this suggests that it must have something to do with the body as well. So Paul says things like, greet one another with a kiss of peace. That's why even in you know contemporary society, all sorts of qualities about ourselves and our relations are communicated in, in what's called body language. So to sum up, the saints that we the saints are gifts from Christ. We see in Genesis chapter twenty, God comes to Abimelech and he says, Abraham will pray for you, 
and I will heal you. So God, having the power to heal Abimelech's household in himself, nevertheless chooses to communicate that power in and through Abraham. Because Abraham is a prophet, he will pray for you. He has the indwelling of the Spirit. This is simply part of what God does. This is the way that he runs the world. God chooses to make man his partner in the ongoing creative glorification and sustenance of the world in its existence. God could, wholly apart from man, develop the world from glory to glory, but he has chosen to do so in and through man. And man par excellence is the church. The church is the household in which all mankind is to be unified, glorified, and instrumentalized as the life giver of all creation. When we are in Christ, living water flows not just from his heart, but from our heart as well. And that living water is the Holy Spirit who flows from Christ into us and through us into all others. So Christ has the power in himself to give us everything that we need, but he has chosen to give us what we need by incorporating us into a great cloud of witnesses. This language of the cloud, spirit. The spirit is fire. The spirit is water. The spirit is a cloud and wind. And he incorporates all human beings in Christ into a specific relationship. Every human being is a specific relationship to every other human being. It's not just a generic brotherhood, but it has a structure, a particular elegance, a particular splendor which is not reducible to the other ways that it could be that's part of its glory and so in coming to be in christ we have all of the saints on that account so it is not as if we first have to go through the saints and then we have christ it is rather that we are directly incorporated into christ and it is in being directly incorporated into christ that we have all of the saints as well. And so I've added this final note that quote unquote folk spirituality is not necessarily beyond reproach. There is such a thing as bad spirituality. You can see obvious examples of this in stuff like folk magic, which was syncretized in many cases with Christianity and East and West alike. But uh, in defending the veneration of saints and the communion of saints, uh, we're not saying that everything that is done under that heading is necessarily appropriate. And I'm not speaking of things in our liturgical tradition, I'm not speaking of things that the saints have written. I'm speaking more of things that will kind of grow up in a context where theological education is not good, where it's largely a matter of kind of rote habit. Um, and in these cases, I am not saying that idolatry uh, has not and or cannot grow up. But I am rather saying in our liturgical tradition, that is not what's going on. And moreover, it is an internal aspect of the work of Jesus Christ that he stitches the creation back together through the stitching back together of all human relationships. So the communion of saints and the honor that we pay to the saints belongs to the very nature of the Christian faith insofar as it attests to the fact that God really has glorified mankind. God really has bound us together in love. 
and thus we behave toward the saints as we behave towards those in whom God is personally and gloriously present because indeed he is. God is glorious in his saints. Uh, I thank you for watching or listening and I would appreciate all of your prayers. Uh, please do write me in the diptychs for the Eucharistic liturgy. My name is Seraphim, so uh, just write me to be commemorated in the Divine Liturgy. Uh, thank you so much, and I will uh, see you again soon.